Well, that's the most Carl answer ever. It's both <laughs> accurate and it's shamed me for not being facty enough. Hey, Caitlin. Chris, what's up? Not too much. We have a guest this week, um, your nemesis from Twitter. At least one of them. <laughs> Who's actually like become a pretty good friend of mine, Carl Bialik, host of the 30 Love podcast, journalist. He's at Yelp. He was at 538. He was at Wall Street Journal. He's great and fun. He just um, correctly points out that a lot of times I sort of gloss over the facts. You don't seem to. How do you escape all this scrutiny, by the way? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think because because you're a much more engaging talker, people like perk up and they're like, put a lot more scrutiny on what you say. So no, I think it's just because I'm louder. You're, Maybe. you're louder. Yes. And you have tweeted more recently than 2015. So I think that that's part of my advantage on this. Mm, yeah, mm. good good idea. Create yeah. a Twitter profile and then totally ignore it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Words to live by. Words to live um, by. Well, yeah, no, I'm really excited to talk to Carl. He had me on his show, um, with 30 Love, which is a 30-minute and under podcast that is a little bit more fact-based. And I don't mean that in a derisive way, just more like ours is supposed to be silly. His is truly trying to get more people talking about tennis, which I think everybody likes. Yep. You know what this also represents before we get to Carl in a second? We're already doing your resolution exactly for 2018. We're ahead of the game. More interviews. Yeah, this is already one. We probably did, what, like three all of last year? If we chart chart this out, we are, we're going to do 52 interviews. This is pretty great. Just Feeling good already. Out. Yeah, great. And, and do you want to know what? Go I'm on. wearing a Korean face mask. You're <laughs> wearing a Korean face mask. Like, yeah. And you actually mean that. That's not like a... That's not what a kind of euphemism would that be? What like horrific racial thing would that mean? No, I'm wearing a face mask from Korea. I keep them in my fridge. <laughs> this one has an orange on it. Okay. It smells great. Okay, so explain explain what that would what you hope to accomplish by by wearing that. Facial hydration. That's it. Okay. Do you not worry about face moisture? I I I don't at all. I didn't uh, I didn't know that uh, that that other people worried about it a whole lot either. I, and I have to say. Okay, without further ado, here is our friend Carl Bialik, who we are thrilled to welcome to The May Draw. Oh, I hear some football. Hello, Carl. How's it going? We're going to start kind of in the middle of something. I don't know if you heard the last two episodes we did, but we've been having an ongoing conversation with our listenership, a fun thought experiment, which I kind of feel like is the point of our podcast since we can't really get the facts right. Facts aren't our space in this tennis, <laughs> tennis world. Yes. So we've been doing a thought experiment where in Project Vegas. Ultron. So it's not just your best day. It's like your best version of every shot, right? Yeah. I think it just sounds more fun. Like just like knowing you would have your best forehand at your disposal all day is like, it would be an amazing feeling. Also, what I love about the responses we've been getting, two of which I'm about to read, are the fact that people, some of them are extremely self-aware about their own games, which is fun, but also like it goes to show you how deep of cuts people are taking at tennis events. Like one of the ones from last week was somebody who mentioned a qualifier in Quebec that they'd obviously, A, heard of. Like m most people who I assume listen to the show don't even know what a qualifier is. Um, and B, they know where Quebec is. And having been a resident of Quebec for 10 years, I've never been to Quebec City. What's up there? Who knows? Qualies. Yeah. <laughs> Qualies. And tennis players. And Voltron tennis players. Okay, so two that I'm going to add to the mix before I ask you, Carl, what your best Voltron version would be. One from Daniel Menchik, who's a frequent commenter uh, on the pod, who says, I would reach the boys' 18 semis of the other Kalamazoo event. That's the Nationals, uh, the Nats at the Zoo, they call it, uh, which is the, the national tournament for boys 
18 and under. And then I would lose because apparently he went and watched Justin Gimmelstab play John Michael Gamble, wow. who had two hands on both sides. Yep, yep. Uh, yep. And very handsome. And very handsome. Yeah, cut from stone, that Jan Michael. And then our second one, which had a delightful amount of shade, was from a, a listener of ours um, named Bob Stocking, who said, I just listened to your podcast this morning. I'm 54 and just returned to tennis after a 20-plus year layoff. So I think even my Voltron self would be lucky to get a couple of games on the Power Shares. And here I quote, tour. Which brings up this whole notion of the Power Shares tour. <laughs> what is it? It's like the seniors, I think. It's like every time I turn around, that's what James Blake is up to. Basically, yeah. <laughs> it feels like it's just, maybe it's the name. It's just for investment bankers. Like you have to be a white guy. <laughs> like it's just not marketed to me, obviously. <laughs> that's like the third time you've, you've ripped on, on iBanker. iBankers. Yeah, that's, which is probably pretty terrible. Because I think that's like a pretty hefty like portion of the tennis audience, no? Yeah, I mean, you're like going after like, yeah, right, squarely in the tennis demo. For sure. If they're not golfing, they're playing tennis or watching power shares. Well, maybe as a provocateur, I should say, like, get out of here, guys. Go to golf. You're making the sport worse with your head-to-toe Roger Federer gear. (laughs) Am I wrong? They're Federer fans. They're definitely Federer fans. They're so unimaginative. Anyway, Carl, before you introduce listeners to your copious amount of journalistic experience, how we know each other, all the fun stuff, our slight beef in tennis podcasts, which I'm delighted that is a thing that I can talk about because I've never had a beef with anyone. <laughs> um, can you jump into the middle and tell me about what your Voltron self would be able to accomplish on a tennis court? Well, I really want to like exploit all the Voltron advantages here. And I feel like if I'm really able to hit my best version of every shot, I'm just going to like drop shot and drop volley and drop half volley and slice and like hit all the shots that people don't want to play against. Because I'm going to hit the best version. I'm not going to hit the drop shot that lands on the service line and just sits up there. I'm going to hit the perfect bounces six times before you get to a drop shot. So I'm going to really like take advantage and maybe make my high school team, which I never successfully did. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. But he grew up at the Terry camp, so that's not, that's not so horrible. <laughs> you went to Bronx Science, right? I did, which has a pretty good tennis team. And yeah, I was going to say, that's like... a storied New York City public high school, magnet school. The way I remember it is I tried out every year and didn't make it. I know I tried out at least twice and didn't make it, and I definitely never made it. So that that's my Bronx Science tennis career. Hmm. So what you described I have heard called a party game. Want to know why? Please. Chips and dips. <laughs> Jesus. I'm so glad you guys laughed. It's so <laughs> Join Caitlin for her 53rd birthday next week. <laughs> there's great clips online. I think there's like th- in three instances, Federer uh, hit drop shot winners to round its second serves. It's like, how deflating would that be? <laughs> <laughs> like this, especially the second and the third time. And they're like, definitely, definitely not mishits. <laughs> yeah, there's a taunting element to uh, what you just described. Do you feel like that's something you bring to the court? Yeah, it's definitely part of my tennis personality. I I hope it's not too much part of my non-tennis personality, but I don't have a big serve. I don't have a great forehand. I don't generate a lot of topspin. So one of my frequent opponents who seems to like to play with me still has pointed out that my game is basically I have to break the point down so it's not just two people hitting from the baseline, but like turn it into something weird and chaotic, and that's where I thrive. You like kick the tennis out of tennis and like 
that's how you win, basically. I take what most people think of 10 out of 10. You know? <laughs> right, right. Open your mind, man. It's fair, you know? <laughs> well, that's actually like a perfect segue into introducing you. You're a journalist. You're a data science editor currently at Yelp. Prior to that, you were at the Wall Street Journal, and we first met when you were at 538. Obviously, you're also a co-founder of the sports magazine, Gelf. I feel like your whole approach to sports is probably thoughtful. Totally. I am I'm always thinking tactically, strategically, and it definitely annoys some opponents. And some of them give it right back to me, and those are like the most mentally bruising matches you can imagine. I know you play with one of my um, my parent friends named Andy Braggan, who's also a playwright who wrote the play Don't You Fucking Say a Word, which was excerpted in our second issue. And um, Andy and Carl, I think through the tennis world of racket, am I right about that, are now like tennis foes in Long Island City. You are completely right. Andy approached me at the Gelf Magazine event in 2016 where we were introducing Racket. It was like celebrating Racket's launch. And he said, hey, I don't know you, but you should come host a post-play event at my play that hasn't yet opened called Don't You Fucking Say Another Word. And then after I did that, I did another one. And then he said, we should play sometime, which was particularly provocative because the play was all about a character loosely based on him completely losing his shit on the tennis court and basically erupting into almost violence. And I'm like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. I'll play you all the time. And he's, <laughs> he's the most like gracious and thoughtful and wonderful opponent ever. So maybe once you write a play about it, you kind of purge that yeah. aspect of yourself. I like that. But he's also very cerebral. So he was someone I had in mind when I said, when I play someone who is also like thinking about how can I, win the point and not how, not just how can I like enjoy tennis. It can be exhausting. Andy is definitely in that category. Just as you were saying that, I was thinking like finding people to play tennis with as an adult is like one of the weird like last conduits I have to like new male friendships outside work. Mm -hmm. Which know is what, what his play is all about. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Huh. Wow, that that was that was not like guerrilla marketing for, for that play. True. And I moved to London six years ago and didn't know anyone but my first priority was other than just friends like I need friends who can play tennis and there's a website there that basically connects you with such people and made some of my best friends there through that site all your friends are eye bankers in England <laughs> in London it was mostly like designers and photographers it was people who were free in the mornings because I was working US time but that, that was a bit of a skewed experience your most recent podcast episode and I love your fascination with the recreational game of tennis sort of get us into why that particular story came into fruition and then like what that says about what you're trying to do with 30 love the podcast that story is when I was at five 38, I wrote mostly about not tennis, which is kind of a bummer for, you know, the tennis fan inside of me. I was writing about a lot of interesting topics, including the 2016 election, which you might have heard about. But <laughs> I was always looking for opportunities to write about tennis. And I don't even remember how, but I discovered this Kevin Schmidt's website. And he is kind of a USTA amateur ratings expert. And he dug in deep into people who sandbag basically tried to lower their ratings sometimes on an individual basis, sometimes on a whole team basis, just to like get to nationals with as big of an edge as possible so that you were basically playing against teams that were worse than you because you'd lowered your ratings. You could face them. And I'd always wanted to do a story about them at 530 and I basically didn't get to it. So when I started this podcast, Part of the fun of it is now I can just contact people who I've wanted to talk to, wanted to do stories about and say, let's talk for under 30 minutes and just put it out into the world the next day, which is 
a very different turnaround than like doing a 1500 word article for a very well edited and fact check site. So there are pluses and minuses to that, but it meant mm -hmm. that I could just email Kevin say, hey, let's do an episode sometime and then the next week have it out. And it was fascinating to me because it's not really a world I directly know. I've never played a USTA league. And I've always been fascinated by that world because I think the level I'm at, I could be at, I don't know which level, but I could play USTA. And the notion that someone would deliberately lose matches, like potentially travel somewhere far away from their home to meet some stranger who has also traveled far from their home and committed time out of their lives to play and then lose every point just so that you can like get a crappy rating so that'll pay off six months from now. The psychology of that and the just the reality that that happens and people get away with that was so fascinating to me and and that's where that came from it's it just like literally whatever your curiosity takes you is there a data angle that you're trying to surface i probably do have a bit of a data bent but it, it's more just i've been following the game as a journalist and also as a fan for such a long time that i've had the privilege of getting to know a lot of fascinating people who come at it from lots of different angles and who i think people would love to know about and hear about, but don't really know. So I, I have had people on who are well-known, but I think I've had more people on who aren't. And it's more a way to share their voice and share what they're up to. So what and is like one of your sort of favorite interviews that's not with somebody prominent? Um, I've also done two episodes with doubles players and yes. other kind of obscure corner of the sport that I totally love. So those are two of my favorite episodes as well. I just think doubles is so underappreciated for what it is. Doubles is my incredible passion and actually talking about like recreational tennis and how it's represented in the media which is to say like not really that we don't appreciate doubles at all and it's the thing that most people play right most people or at least in leagues due to time and it's a little bit more of a condensed game and especially as people age doubles is is in a lot of cases the only thing a lot of people i know play and the fact that it doesn't get much prominence in broadcasts tennis would be a lot healthier and it would be a lot more fun if we could really amplify that. I don't know how you start. When you were on my show two weeks ago, you made the really wonderful point about how tennis doesn't do enough to promote the sport in general and the players all the way down because number 100 in a sport, in, in a team sport, would be like a star and in tennis is a no one. And I think that goes for doubles too. Whenever doubles is shown in a prominent way where it feels like it matters, and I think specifically of Davis Cup here and also of the World Tour Finals for the men and the Tour mm -hmm. Finals for the women, where it feels like there's no other match going on at the time, where it's on center court, where everyone's paying attention. Like, it's kind of hard not to get swept up into it. So it really feels like a chicken and egg thing to me. Like, give it more exposure and people will come. But it's tough because, you know, tournaments don't want to put it on center court throughout the week because it's hard to get the crowds out for it. It's hard to sell tickets for it. So it kind of feels like it's in this, this state that is hard to rescue from. But I feel like maybe we could, you know, being the tennis media elite, <laughs> we could like do we could you know we could reach out to the guys at the body serve we could talk to Courtney and ben uh reels tennis fan is another tennis show i listen to um yeah i feel like we could all like collude on this and be like no no no, this is going to be the year of doubles because i feel like maybe this is crazy but i feel like easy top three one of the best matches of men this year and of men because i like to reserve women in a totally different other category um <laughs> was uh, Rafa Roger team up at the Labor oh, Cup. Oh, yeah. Too good to be true. 
It's really awesome. Can you name their opponents? Sock and Curious? No, Sock and uh, Isner. No, uh, um... it's definitely Sock. I'm trying to remember who the other guy was. Who cares? It was Roger and Ruff on the same time. No, it was so, like it was the it was the moment where even more than any Grand Slam final, I think this year, more of sort of people I didn't expect to be following tennis around the world would seem to be tuning in. No, it's totally true. Okay, so incredible. taking the lessons of the Labor Cup, and I think that this ties into both what you know you and I chatted on, about on Thirty Love, and also what we're talking about here. Like this is a broadcasting challenge. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a tournament challenge in the sense that you have to stage it um, in the first place. But I feel like people, if you're already at a tournament, yeah, maybe like you're splitting hairs, getting them from like a singles match to a doubles match. But they're probably like excited enough about tennis to get there. Where I think we need to really innovate is the like conception and execution of like broadcast quality stunty shit like this like it's fucking awesome seeing roger and ruff on the same side and like you know nick curious like waving a towel over his head cheering on his teammates yeah. like the whole thing of it was just like fuck yeah this was awesome it the, felt like the you know, shots are fireworks incredible. on top of yeah c4 and just you know yeah and i think it you know, they did something kind of stunty, speaking of gimmicks, of having like a, a camera in when they were talking tactics. And it, it definitely felt a little forced, but it was also fun. Like, and that's part of the cool thing about doubles is that there's a lot more coordination and sort of analogies to other sports people are comfortable with of two teammates trying to talk through how are we going to maximize our potential and not hit each other in the head at the same time. Yeah. And, I thought that really helped. By the way, it was Query and Sock, yeah. and I totally forgot. I totally yeah, those Trump voting tall American men, like they could, <laughs> they're like faceless to me. Although Sock is, according to some measures, the best doubles player in the world. Whose measures? Uh, Jeff Sackman, who does a lot of tennis stat stuff and, and kind of tried to separate individual doubles talent. Because Sock doesn't really commit to it, but whenever he plays, he's awesome. It's, it's well, fun. that's the most Carl answer ever. It's both <laughs> accurate and it's shamed me for not being facty enough. Is the opinion <laughs> of the only person on earth qualified to answer that question? <laughs> well, the only person who bothered. But like with doubles, if you realize it's such an uphill battle when you consider like the Bryan brothers to break through, they had to be really good have like branded themselves with moves and be identical twins. <laughs> like that's what it takes to break through a doubles. You didn't need chest bumps. I feel like the brand brothers are creepy as fuck you guys. Like, <laughs> yeah, but it's working. What creepy or not, they have like endorsements and shit. So it's like going okay. Yeah. They're the only American doubles specialists who have commercials. Has there been a, like a good doubles team that, two people just fucking hated each other <laughs> like i would watch that part of the fun of doubles and i think where tennis could probably figure out how to pitch this more as a general interest thing is the musical chairs here and it's actually happening right now while we're talking like all these teams are now looking at each other and saying do i want to stay with you am i kind of pissed at you for what you said in september can huh. i do better with someone else there's a lot of couples uh therapy and breakup happening right now Devils has such potential. I feel like the points are fast. You get to see people, you know, I love hot shots. You get to see a lot of hot shots of people making incredible sticks and stabs. I mean, a lot of the, I would say a disproportionate amount of the annual highlights come in doubles. It's especially incredible because most doubles matches aren't even televised. That just shows you how exciting a typical doubles match is. If a hot shot in doubles happens in a forest, but nobody tapes it. <laughs> I would tell you about it in a thousand words. You would tell me there about it in a thousand words. That's where Carl Bialik is lurking around with a camera, capturing it. Hey, uh, Caitlin and I talked about asking you some questions about tennis data that we've never seen that we would want to have. So can I ask you some 
uh, embarrassing questions because maybe it's all out there. Um, but it's like stuff I've always wanted to see. Please. I really like uh, the few times when tennis announcers get into like discussing which patterns are working. Are there stats out there about how often players do that and how often it works? Like, can you find like pattern breakdowns? Yeah. So my answer here may end up standing in for a lot of a lot of what you're wondering about. The answer is basically those stats are out there, but you or I or Caitlin cannot go and find them, which is my great frustration. You would have to be sort of at the mercy of the TV producer. So uh, Hawkeye is the company that has all those cameras ringing the courts, and we usually think of them in terms of using those cameras to review calls that players challenge and, and was the ball in or out. But those those cam- those cameras also recreate like all the the locations of the balls and of the players on every point so they can answer a question like that and it's incredible it's incredibly powerful but the data is owned by the tournament and i've talked to people who work in tv and they can kind of like it's a very uh informal process where they can like message the person at hawkeye and say hey can you send me the answer to this question of how often has federer served out wide and how often has it worked and they can get the answer so if they happen to do that that's great. They'll say it on the air. Some of them will tweet that image and you'll get that answer. But if you want to know like across every match, Federer or Nadal or whoever has played this year, how often have they done that? How often has it worked? You're out of luck unless somebody happens to have asked for it and and shared the answer with the world. So I'd love to see tennis get to a place where that's just available for everyone, which is where the other sports we talked about, like baseball and basketball are. What's the benefit to not putting it out there for the Hawkeye people? Great question. Like beyond the costs, uh, uh, maybe of like finding a platform for it or something, but like, how would Why that not, help? Sir? Yeah, like how would that help a Hawkeye competitor? Yeah, I, I think I think there's a few things. So one is it's somewhat out of our hands the way they've written the deal. So technically, USTA controls the US Open data and LTA controls the Wimbledon data. And you know, the individual, not even ATP, but the individual tournament controls the Indian Wells and Miami and so on data. So it's really fractured. So Hawkeye, even if they did want to share it with everyone, would have to individually go to each tournament, get their permission, and then also like negotiate that the next time that they're negotiating with those tournaments. I think another factor that comes in is like with any data, this stuff isn't perfect. I'm sure we've all seen matches where someone calls for a challenge and you look up at the board and you watch and you watch and then the umpire says, sorry, the data isn't available. Like this, this doesn't always work. Sometimes the camera is obstructed or too many cameras are obstructed by too many people or something like that. And I think one of their probably legitimate concerns is if we completely throw this out and open to the world, someone nitpicky, I don't know who would ever nitpick tennis stuff. <laughs> I would never do it. But someone <laughs> might say, hey, this isn't totally 100% right. And then this like gracious, generous thing that a company did could backfire on them. So Jesus. I think that's another factor. A nitpicker's veto, basically, is yeah. what is what they're worried about. Oh, Goddamn the nitpickers. Yeah, well, that is like a uh, fucking tragedy because in basketball it was a little similar. Like teams had it before, um, before I think a lot of fans or reporters did. That's my understanding at least. But like, there's this awesome website cleaning the glass that has like incredibly detailed, like, you know, a pick and roll from this spot on the floor works X per, you know, X percent of the time for mm-hmm. these players home away, all these amazing splits. And like tennis really, I think lends itself to that. Cause it is like pretty discreet, you know, it's just two people. So 
Yeah, it lends itself more than basketball does. Right. Basketball is so far ahead, and it's a shame. Yeah. Okay, but here's the counter argument. <laughs> Go. With all you, you know, fact-based uh, thinkers. <laughs> Say you turn tennis into more of a sabermetrics-esque experience, right? Really good for the fans, because, you know, if you don't like that stuff, you can opt out of it. But imagine a whole bunch of nerds being really pumped about that kind of experience, A. But B, do you think it would help the players or do you think that there's so many things that they're trying to juggle in their heads that hearing about like oh you know Andy Murray when he's off his back foot on the backhand you know tends to hit it down the line so like remember that if it happens in a <laughs> 57 <laughs> shot rally you know what right. I mean Right. I mean, maybe I would really have to simplify it and be like, yeah. okay, listen, Carl has a party game. He's going to do a lot of chips and dips, and it typically does a chip when you <laughs> serve it out, you know, wide to his forehand. So look for that drop shot on the second serve return. You know what I mean? Right. Like maybe that kind of like bullet point would stick in my head. But I definitely don't think I could, my head wouldn't be able to contain that many different discrete takeaways. So I, would this data be useful? I, well, I think for some players, like, you know how they talk about how, like, Agassi can remember rallies from, like, 1993? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I feel like part of the reason they're professional players is that their brain can operate on that level. So for some but not all, it probably would be an advantage. I don't know. But they might kind of intuit it anyway, like, given how much they play. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think I think those are both right. Like, for on the one hand, player, there are some players who, I think it varies by player, and some players would say, I don't want to hear any of that shit. Don't clutter my head. I need to focus on other things. But they're actually doing it themselves. They just aren't doing it on a conscious level. But the the sort of pattern recognition and anticipation huh. is so strong that they're essentially doing that. Uh, but I also think that for some players, they actually do want that information. Um, and it's already happening. Like the players now have access to things that we don't. So for instance, at the slams, IBM has archives of like every match and players can get the sort of shot by shot, point by point logged uh, video data. So they can be like, show me every backhand that Djokovic hit in his last match if they're playing Djokovic in the next match, let's say. And I think this is also sort of the haves and have not stuff. Like if you're if you're lower ranked and you're just worrying about how do I even afford getting to that tournament and like resting somewhere comfortably so I can be in my best shape for the match, maybe you don't want to worry about that. But if you are Djokovic, he is very secretive about this, but my guess is someone on his team is actually processing that. And as Chris said, probably giving him some bullet points. Like they don't want to give him 20. That's way too much. But if they can distill it to these are the three things you really need to remember going into this match against this opponent, that can be useful. Carl, that was such a thoroughly comprehensive answer that you made me not only appreciate data and facts, but also I just very guiltily assigned my own thinking about tennis uh, into the like great man category of <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, you know what I mean? That was a totally, totally convincing argument for basically having not only access to this data, but having it be able to be communicated in real time. Cause that's awesome. I feel like that doesn't, I mean, maybe the player doesn't know what to do with it or maybe the coach doesn't communicate it well, but there's no downside in having more information. Right. Yeah. And the WTA now has these, these tablets where they, the coach can sit next to the player and be like, look, here's what's happening during this match that we're playing right now. Here's what you should do in 60 seconds. And I think it's still a work in progress, but I, I love the potential of it. Yeah. Well, I remember watching a, a Mladenovich match at the beginning of the year and somebody, I think it was her mom took out a tablet uh, onto the court and and she kind of got a lot of shit for it like you could tell it wasn't quite like 
uh, accepted or, or sort of understood on the tour. Um, I'm kind of pulling this like at, randomly out of my out of my head, but I feel like more the more people see this on the court, the more it becomes part of the broadcasting sort of you know parlance. Maybe maybe it'll get better and maybe it'll get more sort of normalized, so that can be a thing. I think it just takes one player clearly benefiting from it. Like yeah. players will react to, oh, that worked, and that player turned around that match. I will do that. Like I think they're very opportunistic. So when it, when it looks like it will actually help them, they'll be all about it. Between the data and the broadcasting and the formatting, we're totally in agreement. It's like we've agreed on everything forever. <laughs> so I never need to come on again. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Carl Biala, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Carl. All right, Caitlin. So we will talk uh, after the holidays. Uh, where we'll be running downhill towards the Australian Open. Let's bring our minds to the southern hemisphere because that's where tennis will be. Is it your is it your third favorite major? Your fourth favorite major? It's my third favorite major. What's yours? Huh. Uh, it's my or second it rank for you. It's my second favorite major, mostly for night matches. Like I think that's that's kind of my thing, and I'm a night owl, so the fact that a match will start at two a.m. is uh, is great. What are you talking about? Do you wait up for the match to start? I'm up late a lot with, with my job, yeah. Yep. Wow. It's great. Well, yeah. I'm a weird, anxious sleeper, so I'm up early a lot. So I share your love of late-night Australian-specific matches. Yep. U.S. Open, I hate it. Right. Like, right. I'll never watch the beginning of a 2 a.m. match, but I will often catch the end of one. <laughs> exactly. Perfect for the fifth set. You're all set. Everybody wins. <laughs> exactly. Plus, it just seems so happy, and I'm, like, so thrilled to have tennis back in my life in a major way. Yeah. Plus, Australian, Australia has given us, like, a lot of memorable stuff. The U.S. Open, aside from going there in person, on TV is just not that good. Right. All right. Well, let's get right. pumped. See you in 2018. See you in 2018.